Dark Days of Dorothy Gale contains content not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, you came back for this very special, very out-of-place episode. Thanks. I love statistics and stuff, but to be honest, Spotify for podcasters isn't really great for numbers. And before it was Spotify for podcasters, it was Anchor, and they were... Actually, even worse. The The point is, I don't really have much knowledge of my fan base. According to Spotify, my audience is, well, small, to say the least. But they tell me that 90% of my listeners are in the U.S., 3% are in Germany, 2% in Norway, and 1% in Canada. I guess the rest of the audience just comes from various other places. They also tell me 66.7% of my audience is women, while 33.3% is men. And according to the simplistic bar graph they show on my analytics page, that 33.3% is men aged between 0 and 17, while that 66.7% of women is between 35 and 44. If I'd known I could reach that age of female audience way back when I was in college, I might be living a very different life right now. I could be in Florida with my aging sugar mama, recording on some beachfront property, no doubt. Life would be, as I said, very different. Not saying that would be a good thing, mind you. I mean, I wouldn't be married to my beautiful wife or have my two awesome children. Probably wouldn't have written Dark Days of Dorothy Gale, or Darker Days for that matter. Probably wouldn't have written anything, actually. And it's not as though I get unsolicited messages and online advances from that large portion of my small audience, because I don't which is probably for the better. But anyways, uh, you're probably wondering what I'm going on about here, possibly even saying in your car out loud as you're sitting at that red light, Tyler, get to the point already. And I will, I will, just, just uh, hold your horses there. The point is, I assume the audience for season one is a little different from the target audience of Season 2. The people that showed up for Season 1 were more likely to be fans of the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Curious to know what I had to say about it. Curious to hear my take on the adventure. Season 2 strayed quite away from that. Strays quite away from that. I imagine some listeners are more curious about Dante's Inferno than the Wizard of Oz. And I assume there's a cross-section of people that showed up for the Wizard of Oz stuff and then stuck around for everything else because they enjoy the content I create. Again, you're probably wondering what the point is. And again, I'm getting to it, so just 
Just, just hold on, hold on. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. I promise. I've talked a fair amount about my youthful love of gaming, and I've never been shy about how much Silent Hill or The Elder Scrolls have influenced me. I'm not sure what, if any, part of my audience actually cares about video games. Add to that video games from 13 years ago. But here I am, about to give you a review of the 2010 EA visceral game Dante's Inferno. A game that was meant to be expanded into a franchise that never was. A clone of a game of a now somewhat bygone era. Dante's Inferno was released at a time when I was really into gaming. I followed all the news, I was excited for a lot of things, my paychecks were consistently consumed by new games, map packs, and expansions. I followed the production of Dante's Inferno from well before it was released. I checked out all the screenshots, I watched all the trailers, I read all the interviews, and I watched all the production diaries I could find. I knew it was going to be a God of War clone, and I was okay with that. And I knew it wasn't going to be particularly faithful to the poem, and I was okay with that as well. I was just excited, because the Inferno was, and is, something I found, and find, endlessly fascinating. I watched an interview once with one of the developers early on, where he admitted that they had to make some pretty big changes. The poem is sometimes a little slow-paced. Dante isn't physically strong. He isn't a towering figure of masculine mythology. And they felt, at that time, they couldn't make a slower-paced game without some brooding hero decapitating and slaying monsters. I'm not so sure I agree with that. Certainly at the time, pushing a more moody and atmospheric title was a little more risky. I, I'll give them that much. But had they been a little more forward-thinking, a little less risk-averse, this could have been Dark Souls before Dark Souls. They could have cloned Demon Souls instead of God of War. Maybe instead of the stupid term Souls-like, we would have the stupid term Inferno-like. The first Dark Souls game was released in 2011, while Demon Souls was released in 2009, and Dante's Inferno was wedged in between the two in 2010. It's not the business of Visceral, or the type of game they were known for, but Team Eco could have crossed Eco and Shadow of the Colossus for a truer adaptation of the Inferno as well. And while it might not have been a blockbuster like God of War, it would have garnered a respectable following. But this isn't about what other publishers and developers could have done. It's about what Visceral did do, and why. Also, if the Inferno were to be resurrected again for today's audience, it could easily be handled by the fine folks at Ninja Theory. 
who helmed the excellent Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice and the eventual sequel. A slower, more moody title about sins and inner turmoil would be incredible. Just uh, putting that out there. The story is fairly uninspired. This version of Dante is a crusader. He goes off to war, does some bad things, is murdered, then escapes death by killing death, and then returns home only to find his beloved Beatrice dead and her soul taken by Lucifer. So he sets off into hell to rescue her. Honestly, I feel like that synopsis actually makes the story sound a little deeper than it is. There's a few added plot points that don't really exist in the source material as well. Meeting his mother in the dark wood of suicides being one of the most egregious to me. Closer to the end of the game, we meet his father, a once loyal warrior for the church as well, and along the way we get some historical tidbits. And I, when I say the word tidbits, I really mean tidbits. They're, they're small. They're they're tiny. Anyways, Dante meets sinners in each circle. Sometimes they're easy to find, and other times they're slightly hidden or tucked away down some very short hidden path. The sinners are usually those that define the circles in the actual poem. For example, in Lust, you meet Francesca and Paolo the two that Dante speaks to in the original poem. When you meet them here, though, you're treated to a small bit of text explaining why they are where they are. It's really just enough for the developers to feel good about the research they did. Honestly, though, it feels kind of cheap and tacked on. The cheapness of this sinner scavenger hunt is highlighted by the fact that the character models for these people are generic, and there's absolutely nothing special about them. When you meet these shades, you're given the opportunity to either punish or absolve them. Okay, okay, uh, you know what, I can't explain why this makes me so angry, <laughs> okay? Uh... On, on the list of things that I should find trouble with or take issue with, this should be, like, probably pretty low on my list. But the idea that Dante has the power to absolve sinners and forgive them on behalf of God, the idea that he gets the final say in their afterlife is just, it's just, ah, God, you know, it's, it's just a bridge too far for me, Okay. Dante also gets the option to punish or absolve other enemies as well. The more you punish, the more you can build out your evil skill tree. And the more you absolve and forgive, the more you can build out your holy skill tree. The evil skill tree is larger than the holy one, and the attacks associated with it are arguably more powerful and cool. Also, you're not really missing out on much by just ignoring the holy attacks. This gives the game the illusion of featuring a morality scale, but it's largely useless. Being pious and good here doesn't change your appearance, it won't change the story, it won't have any effect on the NPC interactions, because there isn't an open world here where you're having a lot of NPC interactions, and the same goes for being a hardened, soul-slaying punisher. 
the end result will be the same either way. Plus, the punishment animations are way cooler than the absolving animations. It's like the game wants you to be bad. If this were an intentional design choice, like if they were trying to make a bold statement about the temptation of evil, I could actually admire that. But I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Like I said, this is largely a God of War clone. The control scheme is slightly dated, but fairly standard. You can do all the crazy combos, you can build out your skill trees, you can hack and slash with style, or you can button mash. And I don't say that in a bad way. The game does its best to present depth. It just doesn't make it a requirement. And I like button mashing. I like the idea that I can just sit down and make Dante do a bunch of cool and crazy shit with ease. I'm just not going to pretend that there's more to it. The camera is 99% fixed, so you won't truly be exploring the Inferno, which may actually be for the better. Visually, half the game holds up really well. Dante is well-defined and detailed. Some of the monsters are impressive. My personal favorite is King Minos near the beginning of the game. But a lot of the character models are pretty generic. You're going to be slaying a lot of the same demons here. Beatrice shows up every once in a while, but she's really undetailed, and her character model looks like it came from the Xbox era, not the Xbox 360 era while Lucifer has some interesting smoke effects. Each circle has its own set of baddies as well. Eh, that's pretty cool, but the circle-specific demons are still overshadowed by the generic ones, of which there are few models. I will say this, though. The circle-specific enemies are usually pretty cool, and probably more grotesque than Dante would have imagined. Though... I don't think he ever envisioned the unbaptized children of Limbo to be monster babies with blades for hands. And the sexy lady demons with the demonic vaginas that shoot out monster tentacles feels a little more schlocky than substantive. It's hard to tell where the line is between a genuine desire to present the Inferno and the desire to just be gross and shocking. I don't know where that line is, but the team at Visceral, I don't know as if they were walking it particularly well. The general art style here ranges from inventive to lackluster. There are some incredible animated cutscenes that hold up extremely well, and the pre-rendered cutscenes still look pretty okay too. Circle-specific set pieces are cool at the beginning of the game, but kind of become gradually less creative towards the end of the game. It's kind of like they just burned out halfway through. And again, it's kind of hard to tell what they were trying to do, if they were trying to be faithful or just plain shocking. And it's kind of hard to tell where the faithfulness ends and the shock value begins. For example, there is a lot of penises and vaginas in the Circle of Lust. And the boss there is none other than a giant, naked Cleopatra. Yep, 
giant. And she comes complete with jiggle physics for her bare breasts, which are for some reason full of demon babies that she squeezes from her nipples. Shocking? Yeah. Could be handled a little more effectively and respectively? Yeah. But, you know, the demographic they were aiming for really wasn't looking for theology as much as they were looking for outrageous action and edgy material. Between each circle, however, the environments tend to look the same, with a lot of lava and fire and brimstone. I feel like they didn't utilize the source material quite as well as they could have in this regard. Dante also meets up with Virgil here and there throughout his journey. Virgil in the poem has his badass moments, to be sure. He's throwing shit at Cerberus, he's taunting and threatening various characters that stand in their way. But still, he's a poet, and largely a tour guide. Here, he is presented as a stoic, brooding force. He stands there talking sternly about hell, and answering Dante's questions with authority. What he says is actually relevant to the Inferno, though, and is, for the most part, pretty accurate. He's usually telling Dante who the lost souls are, and why they are where they are. But still, not the Virgil Dante had envisioned. Let's talk about Dante for a moment as well. In reality, he was a poet and a politician. He probably saw some pretty gnarly stuff, but he wasn't a battle-hardened crusader. And he probably didn't sound like he smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. In the poem, he is often weak. He faints and he weeps openly. Not the case here. Here, he has a decent amount of dialogue, and that's to be expected, but Graham McTavish's over-the-top performance is a little, well, over-the-top sometimes. I feel like I've said all there is to say about the graphics, the controls, and the game stuff. So let's switch gears now. Get into the other side of the experience. How faithful is this game to the poem? Obviously, liberties were taken. We all know that. I've already gone through a number of them. And and like I said, that's not necessarily a terrible thing. But still, aren't you curious to know what they, what they kept and what they didn't keep? Despite the game's shortcomings, I truly admire what the team at Visceral was doing. Because I did the same thing with Dark Days of Dorothy Gale and the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And I did it again with Darker Days of Dorothy Gale and the Inferno. So I'm not about to blast them for making changes. But that doesn't mean I have to be happy with all the changes they made. Most of my criticism of the game isn't that it strayed so far from the source material. As much as it is, it's just kind of a mediocre cash-in on a big blockbuster genre. As far as their vision of hell is concerned, I think they did okay. I think they actually did pretty well. And the things they kept intact are fairly and surprisingly accurate. So here's a quick romp 
through the circles as Dante envisioned them and the way Visceral envisioned them. The game opens in the dark wood with the famous midway on my journey through life line, but it's not quite the solemn opening we get from Dante. Instead, we see Dante sitting at a campfire, and he's painfully stitching artwork into his very masculine chest. There's no lion, no leopard, no wolf. The vestibule and the uncommitted are pretty much skipped over as well. In its place, we get Dante returning home to find his dead wife, or fiancé, Beatrice. Dante is introduced to hell, and he must cross the river of Acheron by hopping aboard a giant ship with a human head. There's some cool stuff that happens here, but remember, this ain't that dusty old copy of the Inferno you found in your grandma's basement next to her Bible. Before we move on, I did kind of gloss over a pretty important part of the game at the beginning. I mentioned that he fights death. It's a boss fight that you're kind of... It's just a big boss fight. It's pretty cool, I guess. It's how Dante ends up getting his weapon for the rest of the game. And, uh, yeah, so sorry I skipped over that. I wasn't thinking. Let's Now let's get on to Circle one. Circle one is the virtuous pagans and the unbaptized. This is Limbo. Dante meets Virgil, and he gets the idea of what to expect here. We don't see a lot of pagans, but we do see a lot of unbaptized babies. I feel like this is meant to be more shocking than anything. This area of the actual poem is more peaceful than anything, but you know, it's a game banking on hyperviolence. So instead of peaceful pagans and crying babies, Dante is attacked by infants with knives for hands. And yes, he's gotta kill them all. The shock value here is pretty high, and I'm pretty sure Dante would be rolling in his grave. But from a gaming standpoint, it's entertaining and I'm not holding this choice against them. Just noting the difference. Dante comes across King Minos, a fair representation of the source material, in my most humble of opinions. He's got his serpentine tail, and you can hear him declaring where each sinner goes, and you get to see him throwing them all into the abyss of eternal damnation. This boss fight is pretty standard. Recognize the pattern, hit him when it's obvious, hit him where it's obvious, and between rounds of dodging his attacks, you're faced with waves of generic baddies. With Minos dead and out of the way, Dante is now ready for Circle 2. Lust. This is actually a pretty decent representation as well. A giant storm where the sinners are all whirling around and being thrown about. Probably more penises and vaginas than Dante would have approved of, though. We're talking lots of phallic towers. And all the doors are unmistakably shaped like vaginas. All of this is accompanied by the sounds of sex in the background. The circle-specific enemies here are seductresses who writhe in pleasure, 
before revealing their vaginas are actually tentacle monsters. <laughs> okay, I'm not entirely sure how serious I'm supposed to take this. Okay, I just... It seems kind of schlocky, disingenuous, and flat-out disrespectful to the poem. But hey, it's fun to slay. The level culminates in a boss fight in which Dante must defeat Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Like I said earlier, it's a giant Cleopatra. And uh, if, if you don't know history, Mark Antony was Cleopatra's lover. Once this boss fight is over, Dante moves on to what would be Canto Six, Circle Three, Gluttony. This is one of the most memorable portions of the game, and I give credit where credit is due. This level is one of the most creative up to this point. Actually, I think it's pretty much the most creative in the entire game, which is kind of sad because it's early in the game. The circle-specific monsters are big and grotesque. The scenery is full of strange dental grossness. And before you actually enter into gluttony, you get a fight Cerberus. When most people think of Cerberus, they probably think of a big three-headed dog. That's the standard. Dante envisioned him with more human features, including beards on, on all of its heads. Some would even say that the Dantean Cerberus would most likely have had at least one human head. Team Visceral took note of this with their version. Instead of a three-headed dog, we get three bearded worms all snapping away at our hero. And keeping in line with the idea of humanoid features, all those worms are coming out of the mouth of a giant man. While the art direction is great here, and gross, this was definitely a missed opportunity. In Dante's poem, Virgil satiates the beast by throwing mud into its mouths. This should have been the way for Dante to kill it in the game. Instead, it's a fairly standard boss battle. Between dodging attacks, you break holes in the ground to release small towers of flames... Then the beast gets burned by it, lowers its head, you whack at it a few times, then you enter into some really annoying quick-time events. I hate quick-time events. But again, this is... This is a product of its time. This was, this was how boss battles were done <laughs> back then, and still are in some cases today. But let's, let's move on. There's also a notoriously frustrating puzzle in this circle. It's arguably the most inventive puzzle of the game, which looks like it requires a lot of thought, but actually requires very, very little. The circle itself is pretty short, and it's not long before you meet Virgil at the entrance of the fourth circle. If you're following along with the real Dante, this would be technically Canto 7, Circle 4. Hoarders and wasters. And Circle 5, wrathful, sullen. Here we get some horribly offensive and fictionalized backstory about Dante's father. According to Visceral, Dante's father was a greedy, wealthy rapist. 
And for the sake of the game, Dante's father is literally the embodiment of every sin. And so Dante's got some daddy issues. As far as I know, Dante was in fact born into wealth. His mother died when he was seven, like my version of Dorothy, and not necessarily by suicide. And his father died sometime when he was a teenager. I've never seen anything about his father being bad, though. But hey, liberties are expected to be taken. Don't expect a history lesson from this game. Not that that should need to be said. There is a mention of Lady Luck, or Fortune, here by Virgil. Again, providing the only real or true information in the game. We don't really get to see her. We get mention of King Plutus in the form of a statue, and a pretty basic puzzle involving light and frustrating timed platforming. While we're on the subject of puzzles, yeah, the game has some. Most are easy to overthink, and that doesn't mean that they're clever. For the most part, I feel like the puzzles feel rushed and tacked on. They could have just been left out and we could have gotten some cooler boss fights. Just, uh, just saying. Moving to the end of this fairly uninspired circle of molten gold and poor enemy design, we meet Dante's father face to face. He's yet another generic boss fight that's really one of the easiest in the games. He's no bigger than most of the larger enemies, and like a platypus, he doesn't do very much. Dante defeats him, they have words with each other, Dante must come to terms with who he is and why he is where he is and what it means to be his father's son. Blah, blah, blah. Moving on, we get to the heretics. This circle finds you slashing and bashing popes, or bishops, or just clergymen in general. You know what? I, I'm not entirely sure. I, I feel like this game just doesn't care anymore. This is one of those times that it seems to value shock more than anything. And this level feels just as uninspired as the previous. Climb this, fight that, jump here, go there. Uh, there's some interactions with Virgil, though, that do the poem justice, but that's really all there is to this one. The Circle of Violence does actually have some cool set pieces. Phlegathon, the river of boiling blood, is done pretty well. Gameplay-wise, though, it's getting pretty old. Same old enemies, same old puzzles, same old platforming. Dante eventually finds himself in the dark wood of suicide. This has always been the most memorable part of the poem to me. And honestly, I feel that the game does actually do the source material justice. More than other levels, anyway. It's dark, it's creepy, it's well-constructed. I disapprove of the use of Dante's mother here, though. But that's probably more of a personal thing than anything else. I'm sure there's lots of people that would disapprove of my use of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, so I don't really have much room to talk. But still, not my favorite part of the game. 
I would have much rather seen a true historical figure than retconning Dante's history. The interaction between him and his mother are fine in the context of the game, though. Virgil also shows up to do the usual heavy lifting, explaining the depth of the poem. So there's that. The blasphemers exist in the abominable sands. Looks cool, but somehow doesn't feel like the vast desert wasteland that Dante describes. And that's kind of a bummer. We get a cool animated sequence here, though. Dante the Crusader killing heathens before having to fight them again in hell? Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was wrong to kill them, then they went to hell, and then he now he's right to kill them. Kill, uh, you know what? I'm not... I'm so confused at this point. Anyways, the game focuses on blasphemers, leaving out the usurers and sodomites. It's understandable why the game would avoid those two other groups, though. I mean, usurers. Come on. <laughs> I mean, do you know what a usurer is? Yeah, that's what I thought. Usury isn't as recognizable a sin as blasphemy. Also, in case you're wondering, usury is the illegal action or practice of lending money with unreasonably high interest rates. So yeah, fighting bankers isn't as exciting as blasphemous heathens. And the sodomites? Well... In Dante's time, sodomy, homosexuality, were really frowned upon and considered a sin. And while Dante, the poet, seemed less judgmental than most, or more forgiving than most, for that matter, they all still ended up in hell. So, you know, killing people for homosexuality might not go over so well, even if it's for historical accuracy which this game was obviously not looking to present anyways. So focusing on blasphemy, totally the right move. Props to him for, for that. Also, you get to fight Francesco, Dante's brother. Or, I guess, brother-in-law, that is. There's some bad blood between the two of them. Dante wanted to kill the heathens, Francesco didn't. And for some reason, Francesco's... Still hanging out down here. I'm jeez. Oh, I you know I'm not sure I've got any of this right at this point. The game tries to get deep and philosophical here, but the dialogue feels kinda hammy. But maybe that's just me, and maybe it didn't feel hammy at the time. But I I think it did. I think in 2010 it sounded just as just as bad. Anyways, Francesco looks big and bad when you first meet him, but then the boss fight starts and he's actually not really all that big. I mean, he's bigger than most enemies, but he's no Cerberus or King Minos, so whatever. Missed opportunity here, no real interaction with Jerrion as Dante travels into fraud. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was limitations of the hardware at the time, or maybe... 
putting another giant boss battle in here just wasn't feasible. Maybe they just didn't have the budget or internal resources. I don't know. But it could have been an epic moment. And when you look back on other games at the time with more giant bosses, and it feels inexcusable. I mean, Shadow of the Colossus on the PlayStation 2 was a title that was nothing but gorgeous landscapes and epic bosses. Gears of War and Gears of War 2 and possibly 3. I don't know if 3 was out at the time, but certainly the first two were offering insane set pieces and giant monsters. Okay, you know what? I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. Leaving out Jerrion? Inexcusable. Inexcusable. Anyways, Dante has a brief run-in with Beatrice here, who's now some sort of queen of hell, and she introduces him to the Ten Circles of Fraud. Fraud is my least favorite part of the poem. To me, it always feels like an endless chore. Not saying it isn't valuable or that there isn't anything of interest there, but ten circles is a lot. I mean, there's more circles in fraud than there are sins. The game burns through these in a pretty chore-like manner. Each ring is a trial or a challenge, and the challenges and settings usually have very little to do with the sins themselves. In Circle 1 of Malabulge, the panderers and seducers, Dante is tasked with killing a certain number of enemies in 75 seconds. He has infinite magic, and the enemies are all generic. In Circle 2, Flatterers, Dante must manage to get a 100-hit combo. In Circle 3, the Simonists, Dante has to kill at least five enemies while in the air. And for Circle 4, the Sorcerers and Diviners, Dante must stay in the air for eight seconds. Circle 5, the Politicians, Dante must protect innocent NPCs, that's non-player characters, from an onslaught of enemies. It's political corruption, by the way. Dante wasn't claiming all politicians were evil. Though, sure, a lot of them were, and a lot of them are. So kind of a statement about how politicians don't care about the innocent lives they claim to look out for. Okay, okay, I can, I can, I can work with that, that's fine. In Circle 6, the hypocrites, Dante must kill all the enemies without using magic. In Circle 7, thieves, Dante must kill all the enemies before his health depletes. This one is actually kind of clever, okay? I can, I can admit that. Maybe not clever, but slightly more thoughtful. You know, kill those in thievery while your health is being stolen. I'm okay with that one. In Circle 8, the evil counselors, Dante must kill all the enemies without the ability to block attacks. Circle 9, Sowers of Discord, forces Dante to kill all the enemies in one long combo. In Circle 10, the Falsifiers, Dante must kill all the enemies. And there's a lot. It's an endurance challenge. And God, when I say endurance, I mean endurance. It feels like it goes on forever. It's so long and it's... I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. These 10 challenges, they feel lazy AF. And I... And even the ones that manage to feel clever are still 
very boring and very tedious. So let's move on to the first part of the ninth circle, the traitors. There's another well-animated sequence here, and we see Dante doing some more bad things, and the story attempts once more to get deep as he saves Beatrice and comes to terms with his own sinful past. Virgil gives some background for the giant's well, naming each of them and giving an albeit small but decent enough history lesson for them. That being said, the giants are really just kind of in the background, not doing much, and they barely even add to the atmosphere. So don't expect a giant fight. Not a fight that's giant, but a fight with giants. Anyways, the four circles of treachery are pretty much skipped here. And you're taken straight to the final fight with Lucifer. You find out that Beatrice was pretty much just bait. Lucifer just wanted Dante all along. He's perhaps the biggest boss in the game, and rightly so. The fight, however, is very uninspired. It feels like a rehash of the Minos fight from the beginning of the game. And once you defeat the giant Lucifer, a smaller version of him bursts out of the bigger version, and the smaller version is kind of just a big old sponge. You just keep mashing buttons and hitting him until he's dead. He doesn't look all that cool. His attacks are fairly basic. The fight is just as tedious as the inter- as the endurance challenge from the Circle of Fraud. Somewhere in the middle of this fight, you get a brief monologue from Lucifer and about how he's jealous of all the humans. They were created in God's image, but they're flawed while the angels were perfect. Blah, 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 blah. Anyways, once the fight is finally over, you're granted a pretty but cheesy and somewhat melodramatic cutscene. Turns out Dante's been dead this entire time. So I guess that fight with death at the beginning of the game didn't save his life after all. So, but he, but he did beat death, and he got death's weapon. So, I, I, okay. Anyway, Satan's got big plans for him. He's going to use Dante as the basis for his escape into purgatory and paradise. But Dante refuses to help and uses all the souls he's gathered throughout his journey through the Inferno to absolve himself. Oh my god, there's so much there's so much wrong with this. Not even just from a historical perspective, but from a religious perspective. From a, just a storytelling perspective. Anyways, I'm not all that religious these days, and I'm often critical of Catholicism. And not just the medieval version that Dante preached, but modern Catholicism as well. And even I take issue (laughs) with some of this stupid shit that happens here. It very clearly ends with ambitions of more entries into the series. This was obviously planned... As a franchise, it concludes with Dante escaping hell, emerging from a cave as though he was Jesus, and briefly reuniting with Beatrice, who is now an angel. And the words, to be continued, appear on the screen. 
as the game comes to its conclusion. Okay, okay, I know, I know. I said at the beginning, this isn't meant to be historically accurate. This is a piece of entertainment. This was a time when games like this were all the rage, and developers and publishers thought gamers would frown upon something a little more thought-provoking. They assumed players wanted Avengers Endgame over The Batman. And I know Endgame and The Batman weren't around at the time, but you get the idea, right? They thought gamers wanted blockbusters filled with dazzling special effects instead of something a little more grounded and a little more low-key and meaningful. Overall, for me, this game back then garnered a solid 3 out of 5. Today, still a 3 out of 5, but it's a lower 3. The flaws seem a little more noticeable to me now. The first half seems more creative than the second half, and the liberties taken seem a little more egregious as I grow older. But it still looks pretty, and it's still fun as mindless entertainment. It's not a long game, maybe seven hours. You probably find it pretty cheap these days. And if you're playing on a Xbox Series S or X, it'll actually look even better than it did before. If you're looking for a more spiritual and meaningful journey through life and afterlife, I would highly recommend Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. It's not based on the Inferno. It's not even Christian theology, for that matter. It's not all fire and brimstone, and it isn't an action platformer of yesteryear. But it's something special, nonetheless. It feels like what a future Dante's Inferno could be. Or should be. And while I'm on the subject of what a game based on the Inferno could be or should be, I mentioned Team Eco earlier. If they combined Eco with Shadow of the Colossus and set it in Hell, oh, they could really do the poem justice. Controlling Virgil as he tries to protect Dante and lead him through the Inferno while solving environmental puzzles with a series of truly cinematic and epic boss battles would be... Breathtaking. If you're of a certain age, or just not a gamer in general, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Eco was a game in which a young man had to lead a princess through a variety of rooms and landscapes. Each area was a puzzle that needed to be solved in order to get from point A to point B. There was minimal combat, and the art style was simple but elegant and beautiful. Shadow of the Colossus was a game in which a young man traversed a semi-open world, hunting down giants and slaying them for his own selfish desires. It was emotive and atmospheric. It was nothing but boss fights, and each of the bosses was a puzzle in and of itself. The player had to climb each colossus and find its weakness. It had no real dialogue, the story was simple, and it made the player wonder if what they were doing was actually the right thing. It was a masterpiece of the PlayStation 2 era, and is still a masterpiece to this day. Much like Hellblade, 
neither Eco or Shadow of the Colossus were based on the Inferno, but they both dwelled in a strangely spiritual space that really made you think. Also, why not throw in references to Silent Hill? There could be a Silent Hill-style Inferno with slower combat and more focus on exploration. You could keep the horror aspects of Hell and have all the grotesque things and monsters and still tell a great story. So, to sum this all up, I, I like Dante's Inferno, the game, for what it is. But at the same time, I really dislike it for what it's not. Enough rambling. Enough waiting. Enough hooding off the inevitable. Come back next time for the official start of Darker Days of Dorothy Gale Part 3! Huh? Huh? Was that, was that exciting enough for you? Huh? I don't know. Anyways, uh, thanks for listening. I love you all. <laughs>